This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Royal Symbols. At Royal Symbols, they're taking the 400-year-old tradition of symbol making into the future. If you can think it, they can make it. Whether you play drums in your basement or on the world's biggest stages, they can help you craft your sound. Utilizing their combined 50 years of cymbal sound expertise, they'll take your sound ideas and create an instrument that you'll love. Within their lines of royal cymbals, including the custom-made cymbal craftsman cymbals, they offer a full range of sound colors, and they can modify your current cymbals to better fit your needs. Royal Cymbals was born out of the need to create the best-sounding instruments for drummers who have a wide range of sound needs. Over the past few decades, owners Paul Francis and Sarah Hagen have worked together, along with the world's greatest drummers, to create many of the modern cymbal sounds that you hear in live music and on countless recordings. And they're continuing to do this into the future with Royal Cymbals. Get more info at royalsymbols.com. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 149 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, John Connolly from Seven Dust, I want to remind you about all of the great gear you can get in the shop at mistresscarrie.com. New to the shop, Mistress Carrie guitar picks and the official Mistress Carrie cassette rewinder. With all the cassettes coming out, you know you're going to need a pencil. Plus, you'll find hoodies, t-shirts, beanies, a 7-in-1 bartender tool, and a concert and sporting event approved clear plastic waste bag. Find all that and more in the shop at mistresscarrie.com. My guest this week is John Connolly, a longtime guitar player from Seven Dust, who has been a friend of mine for, well, longer than I can remember. And with the 127th running of the Boston Marathon coming up next week, I wanted to have John on to talk about his training. John Connolly from Seven Dust was challenged by Mark Tremonti from Alter Bridge to take a chance for charity and run the Boston Marathon. John Connolly, of course, accepted the challenge, and he has been training hard for months, getting ready for the world's oldest and most notorious marathon, Boston. I ran the Boston Marathon back in 2019, so I wanted to sit down with John to talk about his training, the history of the marathon, and what the experience is like as a runner. Of course, we also had to talk about Seven Dust. And at the time, John had to hold a lot of stuff close to the vest. 
The band's getting ready to go out on the road with the aforementioned Alter Bridge next month, but just announced today. Seven Dust have announced their 14th studio album, Truth Killer, scheduled for a worldwide release on July 28th via their new record label, Napalm Records. They've also released the first single, it's called Fence, and you'll find that in the corresponding playlist for this episode that's linked in the show notes. 2023 is going to be an amazing year for John and for the band. And next week, John is going to experience something he'll never forget, running the Boston Marathon. So allow me to introduce you to John Connolly from Seven Dust. There he is, the Iron Man himself, Mr. John Connolly. What is going on? How are you? It's so good to see you. Good, yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, we didn't do anything there for like two years, so it, I'm like plus two on everything. It's like, oh, it's just, oh, well, yeah, it was like four years ago. <laughs> I know, it is crazy that we lost so much time. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you get desensitized when you're in it because you're just like, oh, you know, it seems like it's taken forever, and now it seems like it was so long ago, but it's, it, I'm just, I'm so skewed. Everything is off, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to finally be back. Like, it, I think it feels normal now. Like I th- it almost back to like touring is normal, you know, going in and out of airports, there's still people wearing masks, you know, occasionally and stuff, but it just, it, it didn't have that feeling like it did when we were, when we were first trying to come back online, it was miserable. I think we all screwed it up. You know what I mean? It was just like, <laughs> we all started trying to tour too soon Crews are getting sick, bands are getting sick, posting up in hotels, you know, canceling shows. And it was just like, oh, man, this is a mess. But it feels good now. It it feels like the world is sort of like back online. I talked to um, the guys in Buckcherry, like during the pandemic, and they told me that um, they travel with masks even before the pandemic. Because for singers, especially when you're doing a lot of flying it seems oh, yeah. like they're always getting sick because planes are gross. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're stuck in a tube with all of those people that are breathing. Lord knows what they're breathing. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's always it's always one of those things that it, even today I, I, I'm mindful of it. Um, you know, coming back out of the gala in New York City, it's just a lot of people when you're coming in out of LaGuardia. And I haven't done that. Um, often enough to where I'm like, you know what? I need to really kind of pay attention because I don't want to get sick, you know, three weeks before the taper for Boston. It's like, this is sort of go time. This is when I really, really want to, you know, connect all of the, you know, dot all the the I's and cross all the T's and getting sick is just like the one thing that would be like, oh, really? Like I did so good through the whole thing and then you go get sick at the end. So yeah, we we got in and out of there. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I, we're still doing the stuff, um, you know, hand sanitizers everywhere, wiping stuff down. And but it's easy to forget, you know, you, you start to get lazy. And, you know, we've got some friends of ours that just up and out of the blue, like we saw them last week. And they're like, yeah, we got COVID like two days ago. But it's sort of not like it was back then. Um, she even told me she goes, I barely even felt like I was sick. I just thought I had some allergies or something like that. So I guess it's affecting people a little differently, but, uh, yeah, but it yeah. totally does. Like my mom has Alzheimer's and she got COVID and she, within a week lost about 75% of her cognitive ability and it never like, came back. Like, oh, wow. Her Alzheimer's just went into hyperdrive and, 
it all happened within a week. It was like she just fell off a cliff. It was unbelievable how it affected her. Yeah. Oh, it's a shame. And like, I just went to Vegas not that long ago. And I was just like, you know what? Like all the hand sanitizers and stuff. Like if we've learned anything, people washing their hands more is not that bad of a thing. Ever. But, you know, that sort of goes hand in hand with touring mentality. I got to be honest with you, because ever since we started, (laughs) it's going to sound kind of gross. Ever since we started doing these VIPs, uh, now we're doing the sound check VIP where we're up on the stage. And that was sort of like put into place by a lot of the venues. You know, it was just easier. It was like, okay, keep the band away from the people and we won't get the band sick and, you know, vice versa and all that stuff. But we'd come out of some of those VIPs earlier back where we used to get in the floor and actually have people go by the table and sign and hug and, you know, do all that stuff. And it was always like the, the first thing that we would do the second we got up from the table was go to the dressing room and wash down. Cause you, you just don't know, you know, I mean, some, some of it was cause you know, cause I'd be coming back from a run or something stupid like that, you know, but uh, a lot of those, those meet and greets, you go, okay, let me get all of the funk off. Let me go wash my soul real quick and just make sure that we're all good for the show. You know, because getting sick on tour sucks, man. It, it's if you don't have to sing, it's probably not the end of the world. But singing and jamming and it, it's not a lot of fun. You know, well, that's what and, I was going to say, especially for the singers. And and I've had a lot of conversations, especially, you know, over the last three years since I launched the podcast. Guys like, you know, Jonathan Davis are like, look, if somebody gets sick, somebody's out on paternity leave, like we need to bring in a guitar player or a bass player. No offense, John, but like you yep. can you can get somebody to come in and fill in for the weekend. He's like, what are we supposed to do if I get sick? Right. The, the singer is sort of one of those things where it's like, I guess technically you could replace the singer, but I don't think it's going to work that great. You know what I mean? Good luck like, replacing LeJean Witherspoon in Seven Dust. Yeah, I'm call up Miles, say, hey, can you come do seven us? And be like, no. <laughs> First of all, I'm not doing that. And second of all, I'm on tour, you know, and I'm worried about getting sick when I'm out there, too. So, no, I, I, I totally get it. It's it's you know, if the singer gets sick, you're done. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're basically just going to hit pause until your singer's back back right again. You know, so speaking of Miles, um, you know, I had tried for years to kind of get him on the show and it was every time he came through town and they'd be like nah miles can't do it but mark will talk to you and and i was starting to think like does miles hate me and then during (laughs) the pandemic he and i had some really long like in-depth conversations because there was nothing else to do and we talked a lot about vocal health and he was like it it's so taxing talking on show days for me He's like, that's why I, I don't do interviews on the days that I got to sing because it beats the hell out of my voice. And he's a guy, does he even have a house? He's literally on tour all the time with one band or another. That's what it seems like. It seems like him and Selena have just a place where they park the dog and some personal belongings because he's always somewhere doing something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, for him, it's, um, well, it's fascinating too, because he's, um, I don't want to say fragile when it comes to that world, but he he has a tendency like Lejean. I don't want to say he's bulletproof, but Lejean can go hang out in the bar till three or four in the morning, hop on the bus, get up the next day and be fine. And he can be talking the whole time to people like he's it, it almost like gives him superpowers when he talks a lot. 
Um, but with certain singers, I can totally understand where that would be. I mean, it's it's fatigue. It's wear and tear on the on the throat. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like it's not too much different from like a running plan where it's like if you're smashed up because you've been doing it all day, how are you going to do the thing that you really need to do the way you want to do it? You can't. Um, I wonder and, if it's an upper register thing because Miles hits those be. high notes and LJ obviously is known for the low end part of his voice. It, it definitely could be. I mean, it, what Miles is doing takes um, it takes a lot more finesse for sure, but it also takes a lot longer warm up. I mean, he 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 walked me through his warm up procedure and he was like, "This is no joke. Like, you have to really, you have to respect what you're doing and." you know, the ability that you have, but you also have to remember that the second it goes away, you're done. You know, that's not something that you can fake. Uh, I think LJ lost his voice one time and he just looked at me. He was like, I'm sorry. He goes, I don't know what to do here. And I'm like, there's nothing you can do. You know, that's just what happens, you know, and you try to minimize that, but to navigate, um, you know, what singers do, um, you know, everyone thinks everyone's, uh, you know, doing the rock show and hanging out backstage and staying up till seven in the morning and, all these singers are Those like, Those 24-7 no. dust days are long gone. <laughs> They're way long gone. No, but even like talking with Mark, you know, he's like, dude, he goes, it's terrible when I have to tell people I got to go to bed. And they're like, oh, come on, hang out. He goes, I have to sing a show tomorrow. You know, and he's like, and I'm sort of like a new singer, you know, to the whole thing. So he has a completely different appreciation. Um, but it, it's definitely a thing, you know. I mean, anyone could kind of sit in and play my parts for me and they'd be like, oh, that looks weird. You know, I mean, we've had it happen with Clint before. We've never had it with Vinny or with Morgan, but, you know, with me and Clint, it, it wouldn't be that weird of a thing, you know, as long as it was a short, you know, little thing. As long as it wasn't like, a, oh, well, you know, for the next six months, people would be like, all right, well, what's going on with the band? You know? <laughs> but no, uh, he sort of needs to be up there on stage. <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the things that you and I haven't even talked about um, was, it was more than three years ago that AAF got sold and went off the air and LJ came on. And I think Morgan came on too, like the last day we were on the air to kind of talk about some of the crazy old days. And so I kind of joke with everybody that like, you know, we were kind of um, socially distancing and laid off and unemployed before it was cool because of COVID. Like, <laughs> that's true yeah we got stuck doing it before that so you and i haven't talked since before that happened never yep. mind the pandemic yep, yep it's been a minute yeah it's been a long time and i yep. cyber stalk your social media pages and <laughs> and when you started really like hardcore training because like look you've always been a healthy guy but you're at a different place in fitness now than I think. Am I right in saying that maybe you ever thought you could get to? 100%. There's no doubt about it. Um, it, it the, the funny thing is when you get those ones on Facebook where it's like five years ago and you see a picture. And literally, I saw one that came up about three weeks ago. It was, it was from 2019. It was the first bike ride that I'd ever done. And I remember all I wanted to do was throw the bike in the ditch or sell it to the next person that was coming. Cause I was like, I'm in over my head here. I'm uh, like, what am, what am I doing? You know, you, it, it wasn't like I signed up for a 5k. It was like, Oh, I'm going to go do a half Ironman and see how that feels. You know? And the thing about me personally is when I do something, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of do it. I want to like, I want to try to do it as well as I can. And 
Iron Man's a, <laughs> it is a, um, it's the weirdest thing in the world because it's not the actual like running and swimming and biking that's, that's mentally fatiguing. It's the coordination of all of it together and how one thing affects the other and affects the other. And look, every mistake that could have been made, I did it. Every ditch I could have dug, I dug it and threw my body into it. Like, I don't know how I stayed um, injury free for as long as I did. Um, I did the first six months on my own, just winging it to see if like, <laughs> like the first swim in all honesty, I almost called Bill and said, Hey man, this isn't a good idea. Like I, I'm, I'm way, way, way above my pay grade, you know, trying to think that I can do this. Um, the swim, it, it scared me. It really did. Well, wait, so I hold on. So for anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, so I want to go through what an actual Iron Man is. So people sure. understand the the distances we're talking about. Now, keep in mind, I've only done a half. It, these are halves that I'm doing. I haven't actually stepped up to a full, and I'm not 100% sure that I will step up to a full, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But um, with an Ironman, it's basically swim, bike, run, in that order. Um, some of the shorter ones, they've got like Super League and stuff like that where they mix the order up, but those are like, I think it's like a 1K, um, you know, um, run a 4k bike and like a 200 swing. It's a sprint, you know, and you do like multiples of them. That's sort of where triathlon starts. And then you work your way up to Olympic distance. And then you work up to what they call, um, the long distance events, which are the 70.3 would be short course. And then the full would be what we call long course. But either way, when you're doing it, even with the half, it's a 1.2 mile swim into In a 50 open water, right? Water, mm -hmm. open water. Uh, it could be lake, river, ocean. You never know what you're going to get, you know, d depending on the race. And sometimes that actually helps people decide whether they're going to do it. Some people are just like, I'm not getting in the ocean with the sharks or I'm not going down to Florida and I'm not getting in the lakes with the gators. You know, so some people are like, no, I'll go over here and I'll swim in the river or whatever. Um, but it's 1.2 miles um, swim, transition into a 56-mile bike, transition into a half marathon. And then obviously for the full, you're doing a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, and then a full marathon, which is no joke. Because um, the feeling that you have when you've done a 70.3 is brutal, um, especially even if you've done it correctly. Like when you're finished, you're going to go take a nap. Like you've you've earned a couple of days off. You've earned to put your feet up. So for a full, I couldn't even imagine. Um, but it. You know, it, it was one of those things where I think it came in a point in my life that um, we were just getting back on tour. We've been on tour maybe two or three months and coming out of the studio, I was like, man, I'm I'm overweight. Like for me, I'm heavy. Like I'm not supposed to be close to 200 pounds. It's just not healthy for me. So I started, you know, getting in shape for tour and I realized I need to do more cardio than just going to the gym and lifting and doing the normal stuff because you eat when you're in the studio, you know, it's like comfort foods. It helps you because when you're in the creative process, Clint, Clint and myself are, are horrible with this. We're just so insecure about what we've done that you want to unplug from things. And part of the unplugging is going to sit in front of television and watching a movie and pounding down a bag of chips. You know, it's just what you do in the studio. Or uh, drinking or whatever, which adds to a yeah, whole yeah. other part of it, too. Yeah. So... You know, it was it was that point where I remember I had started doing stuff and it was struggle street. I mean, I, I honestly up at that point that I sat down um, with Bill 
I think I was maybe doing like one to two miles consecutively before I had to take a break and take like a walk break just to kind of let the heart rate come back down. Cause I wasn't conditioned for any of that stuff. Um, maybe two or three months of kind of like hiking and putting it together. You know, I, I, I was probably getting 15, 20 miles a weekend, like on a good week. So I wasn't like crazy running, but it was enough where Bill looked at me and, uh, Oh wait, who's got, Bill? Bill is the guy who got me into all of this endurance stuff. He's, he's a good buddy of mine here. We've, uh, we've done family vacations together and things like that. Um, he had done a handful of 70.3s. He comes from a mountain biking background. Um, so for him, it was out of his comfort zone as well, because road biking and triathlon biking are completely different from mountain biking, but they're all related because it's swim, bike, run. It's just a different version of it, you know? So when he's sitting there and I'm telling him about the, you know, training that I'm doing, <laughs> training, you know, like <laughs> walk for like three miles and he's like, well, you know, you sound like you're almost ready to sign up for a 70.3. And the words that did me in were the very first ones that I said. And they're usually the first ones that everyone says when it's a hypothetical and it's thrown at them. Um, I looked at him and I was like, oh, I could never do that. And he looked at me and he just smiled and he didn't say anything. And I looked at him and I was like, why are you smiling over there? He goes, we all say the exact same thing. And I went, it, you know, at that point, it like it was starting to click. And I went, oh, God, don't do this. Just don't do it. I have a real hard time not not standing up to a challenge. That's <laughs> why so you and I have been friends for so long. You want to motivate <laughs> me? Tell me no. I'm telling you, that, that's the thing. And I was like, he wasn't doing it, but I was waiting and I was waiting. And then we just started having the conversation. You know, I, got, I kind of started just picking his brain. I was like, all right, let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. Tell me about the swim. How, how miserable is the swim? And his eyes got big and I went, oh, no, okay. It's a thing, right? He goes, that's why we do it first. You know, because you want to be the freshest when you're doing the yeah, thing. Yeah, they don't want you running a marathon and biking and then getting no. in the open ocean because you'll die. <laughs> no, exactly. So it was one of those things that, you know, he put it on the radar. He made the suggestion. And I had the whole trip up in the car with him talking about it to think about it. We finally get up to the vacation two or three hours after dinner, I remember I was checking Facebook and I just went, oh man, I'm going to really regret doing this. And I made the post. I did the post. I just put it out there. And for me, it was like, okay, now you're accountable. I don't know when the race is, but now at least you've started some kind of a clock. And I remember Bill hit me up. He goes, oh, so you're really, we're doing this, huh? And that was it. You know, it was like, I was getting ready to turn 50. I needed something that really scared the shit out of me. You know, something to just keep me accountable, something to kind of just shake it up, just you wake everything. You could just let me take you skydiving, dude. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of people say that. Like, you could have done something that didn't take nearly as much time of your life, you know. Um, but it freaked me out. The first swim, it really freaked me out because I'm in pretty decent shape. And I figure, okay, I, I should be able to figure out how to do this. And I went from... I was at LA Fitness. I hopped in, put my cap on, the goggles on, and I went to that wall and I stopped. And I grabbed the wall and took like five minutes to catch my breath and realized I have to swim back to go get the phone to tell him I can't do this because it's <laughs> the other side of the pool. And it freaked me out so bad that I literally, like for about a week, I was like, you can't back down from this. You have to figure out a way around that challenge. <laughs> like, it gives you, you a greater appreciation for like Michael Phelps, uh, right? Totally does. It totally does. But here's the thing. And it's 
it's something that everyone should take to heart. Um, if you haven't been swimming and you hop in the water, everyone does all the same mistakes. So just don't do any of those mistakes. Don't try to swim fast. Get a coach. Get someone, um, even if it's just a basic plan, just to give you the basics in the water. And don't worry about how fast you're going. The important thing is just getting in there and get comfortable with it. Um, that was the thing I got lucky on. I, I headed it off at the past. I didn't develop any bad habits to have to unlearn. And I just got in and it took about two or three weeks before I was like, okay, I can do a workout. Um, that being said, I wasn't swimming more than a hundred yards at any, like that was as far as I could go. It took me about six months where I could do multiple hundreds in a set. Um, and I, I still was scratching my head cause I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to swim 1.2 miles where I can't do 200 yards <laughs> together at the same time. And a pool so, is a lot more calm when you get out into open uh, water. You stand up. The bottom's right there. It's like, all you got to do is, yeah, you know, if you want to take a break, take a break. You're not and gonna, the waves you're not gonna and the wind and you're just dealing with the elements. Dealing with the elements, not being able to stand up, currents, other swimmers coming over the top of you, like a bunch of things in open water that you never think about. So it, it took a minute, but I just, I had enough patience and we put the, the race on the schedule far enough down the way where it was like, okay, I'm not going to hurt myself. I'm not going to win anything, but at the same time, I'll be able to do this and I can actually connect the dots. And the first race was miserable all the way around. Um, huge mistakes on every level. I did another race and it was horrible all the way around. Um, it, but it's sort of like the nature of what's happening with that. The beauty of running is you put on a pair of shoes, you get your plan and you go and you do your run. You don't have to worry about navigating to and from a pool or waiting for a lane or getting out to the bike or getting your bike fixed, you know, realize, Oh, you got to spend $1,500 on this thing just to get it race ready. Um, it's you and so your legs you and your legs and a pair of shoes. That's it. You know, and then just being able to nail what you're doing. Um, so the interesting thing about the whole, you know, experience going into triathlon was that back in high school, I was a runner a little bit. And when I, when I say that I, I ran for about two or three years, like I didn't, I didn't run long enough to really find out if I was going to be talented enough to be able to go up to an elite level or anything, but I was within striking distance. Like I was a really good B teamer. Occasionally they throw me on the varsity squad and I was, I wasn't going to win anything, but I was like consistently sub, you know, five minute miler, um, decent at cross country, but not great. But it was at a time in my life where I was so focused on music that I really didn't, I couldn't put that much energy into it. Like I knew that music was going to be the future. And I also was realistic enough back when I was young, I was like, I'm not going to make a living being a runner. Like even the runners that run for a living, it's hard for them to only run for a living unless you're at that top 1%. And how many runners are there on planet earth that aren't doing that? You know? So it's like, I followed my heart, followed the passion and took a 40 year pit stop. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get too hard on yourself. You've done just fine, John. <laughs> well, it, the thing about it was someone told me when I first started this stuff, they said the most important thing that you can do is show up. They're like, it doesn't matter how good the quality of the sessions are or whether you're going faster than the guy three lanes over there or whether you did something better than some cyclist and, you know, another country did or someone you're following on Strava or whatever. They were like, just consistently showing up and doing the work is going to be enough to get you to a place where you're going to be comfortable to be able to do these longer things. That's good life it, advice for anybody with anything. 
you just take take give yourself enough time for the you know the adaptations to happen and all that stuff and just show uh, up and try show up that's it just show up and put the effort in and it, I forget who it was. It was a coach who told me it was a fascinating thing. And it made so much sense because he told me, he said, you do a plus workouts. He goes, you'd be much better off if you did B plus workouts. And I was like, it doesn't make any sense. Like I want to do as good as I can. He goes, yeah. And the problem is you're not giving yourself enough wiggle room for life fatigue. You know, you're expecting that you can nail this plan. He goes, okay, if a 20 year old nails that plan, they can recover as quick as a 20 year old is going to recover at 55, you recover a little differently. It's a little slower. So once he said that, I was like, okay, wait a minute. This is fascinating. He was like, just be really good. Don't be excellent. Every don't try to nail it every, every session, but show up, you know, and on days where you're feeling tired, take the day off or take it slower, do something easier, go unplug from it. You know, your body's going to tell you what it can handle. Your body will tell you what it's going to handle, but it's going to take time period. Like, um, I, I think the whole marathon f f for me was sort of, it was, <laughs> it was the elephant in the room. It had literally become the elephant in the room because I got into triathlon and by year two, I remember it came up, it comes up every year where you do a hundred hundreds. The group does a hundred hundreds. Sometimes swim groups do them on Christmas. It's like the Christmas Eve or Christmas day swim. It's sort of like a big deal. Um, you can do them as 100 hundreds or you can split up the 10,000 meters, however you want to do it. Um, you can use your toys, you can use whatever you want, you, you know, however you want to make up the session. And I remember signing up for that going, cause I asked coach, I said, you think I should do this? And he was like, yeah, you should do that. And I was like, why? And he goes, cause you've never done it. And I went, yeah, okay. He goes, yeah, it'll, it'll at least it's going to do certain things for you because if you can swim for three hours, you can definitely swim for 30 minutes. You know, which back then I didn't realize that until I did it. And then I was like, wow, man, this Ironman swim feels kind of short. So it's almost like this Jedi mind trick, you know, these mental things that you're doing to yourself. You know, I did that first long ride that I did, like in a group scenario, was a century ride. We have a horrible hundred out here in Claremont. And I remember I signed up for it. And Bill was like, oh, he's, like he's going for the century right out of the gate. And we did it and it was it was hard work. I mean, it was a long day. It was six hours of a lot of work, a lot of hills, a lot of, you know, way out of my comfort zone. So when I but see people like you on the road, right, and you're just riding and riding. I don't ride on the road. At all, ever. No. I have enough. Uh, we have Lake Louisa State Park. We have trails. Uh, we have enough options where I don't. I've had like literally one of um, the assistant coach, uh, Michael Fitzpatrick, he got hit by a car twice within six months, destroyed his brand new bike. And then once he literally got green lighted to go and ride again, he got hit again. And it was it was because he was on a road. Um, I mean, you know, I'm a motorcycle rider, so I get it. People aren't paying. They're not looking for bikes. They're definitely not looking for bikes. But we have so many options where I don't have to do that. Um a lot of people say that all the time. Coach used to be like, I need you to get on the road. And I was like, I need you to understand I'm a musician and this is what I do for a living. And this is what I do for fun. And riding down a highway, dodging traffic is not fun. <laughs> not for me. I, I find no, no stimulation in that at all. Now, if you stick me out in the state park where we've got 50 cyclists out there and we're all ripping around and it's a 25 mile an hour zone through the park, that's my stop. That's my cup of tea. So I'm not one of the road guys. I'm I'm definitely, it's not my thing. You know, the bike is probably the one um, sport of the three 
that I would be weakest at. Um, you know, I'm not a big bulky guy. I'm not a powerful guy. I'm quicker in the water and a little quicker on land, but you put me on a bike, I can get through it, um, enough to be able to set up a decent run, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not just a naturally strong cyclist. So well, growing up for me, being a girl, learning how to ride a bike, right? So like, it's something we all learn and make a lot of mistakes at when we're kids. The first thing I think of when I see competitive cyclists and how skinny and small and lightweight those bikes are and how tiny the seats are i'm sorry but all i can think about is your balls hey the one thing every triathlete will ever tell you um when you're on the bike by hour four you want to get off that bike (laughs) (laughs) because your balls and your ass are completely numb at that point you you can't like you're like okay i'm good i think like everything's sort of just like, all right, we're all just beat and numb and just, yeah, you want that bike seat out of your butt. You I don't really want to do. be on my motorcycle for four hours straight and that thing's like a couch. It is a drag. It really is. It's it's the one thing, um, especially if it's like hot, like a really hot and humid day where you're just sweating a lot and you're just like, oh, this is terrible. You're just, uh, it's, it's no fun. Bike's probably my least favorite of all three. But that being said, you know, doing a 10,000 meter swim, and doing a century ride two or three years in a row, I still hadn't done a marathon. And everyone's like, you're the runner. How have you not done a marathon? So I had an opportunity um, after COVID. I had a, a a vein that I needed to have shut down in my right leg. I was actually on my way in as COVID was firing up to get it taken care of. It's an elective surgery. Obviously, they shut everything down. So I had to wait a year and a half. Um, by the time I got it done... It was July, I guess July two years ago, and I signed up for a race in February. I said, okay, I'm going to do the marathon. I'm going to see if I can go from couch to marathon. Um, A couple different things were happening. Number one, I wasn't hiring a coach. I went back and forth on this a ton. Um, And I think it was actually Lori was like, I think you probably have a better understanding of where you are physically. I don't think you really have to have the coach to be able to get you through this, but if you need to sign up for coaching, you know, do whatever you need to do. So I went back and forth on it. I did a lot of research and I just said, you know what, I'm going to try this on my own and see what happens. So literally straight out of surgery, no running for three weeks. The day I get green lighted to go run again, I get COVID. So 10 days of COVID, so I was not running for a little over 40 days. <laughs> How was COVID for you? Because I still haven't had it. It was horrible. I had Delta um, and it it leveled me. But the thing that, that for me as a runner affected me more than anything was my lungs. It stuck in my lungs for a good two or three months. Like I couldn't. I couldn't clear it like there was and it wasn't like I was congested. It was an odd thing. Like I tried to explain it to people. I was like, imagine that I'm a thousand piece puzzle and you open the box and you throw all the pieces out and you put the puzzle together and there's one piece missing. That's what it was like. I was like 999 pieces. And that one piece, I literally was scratching my head, looking around going, there's a mental thing that's like there's something missing. (laughs) And it took a good three months before I could like breathe to where I didn't feel like I needed to sit down and have like an inhale or some kind of, you know, treatment or any kind of stuff like that. Um, and it was for a drag. somebody that's in good shape. Drag. Oh yeah. Like imagine if you're not in good shape. Oh yeah. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine, you know, so coming from the couch back through the surgery and then the COVID and then 
torn up through the marathon. Um, it was actually a really cool experience. I made a lot of mistakes, um, a lot of things that I'm not doing in this training. Um, but that's why you do things more than once so that you can kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. What I learned from that build, um, you know, from couch, I think I finished in 318 um, on a weird day. It was like 30 mile an hour gusts, 36 degrees. And in Florida, that's we basically had a nor'easter down yeah, here. You, you, know? you might as well be next to a polar bear on a glacier in Florida that's at that temperature. But it was like, you know, I was like, oh, God, here we go with this. So it wasn't the best day, but I'll take a day that's cold and rainy way over a day that's hot and humid down here in Florida. I would much rather go that way. So, you know, when I got in uh, 318, I think 325 was Boston qualifying time. Um, well, I looked, I, wasn't- it, I looked it up because just so we're clear, my finishing time for Boston, because I ran it in 2019, which is why I want to talk to you before you run it. Yeah. Uh, I finished in uh, six hours, uh, 24 minutes and 50 seconds. So that's pretty awesome. No, no, it doesn't. Well, it doesn't no, qualify on. me as an 80 year old woman. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. But the thing is, you did the Boston mar- oh, Marathon. No, I ran I it. Mean, don't, don't, Hey, look, and and here's the thing. Like a lot of people, I tell this to people all the time when they get, when they beat themselves up about paces and stuff. I'm like 26 miles at whatever pace you're doing, it's still 26 miles, period. If you covered it, you covered it. And here's the, here's the, the brutal truth of it. The elites are done in two hours. If you're out there for three times that long, (laughs) you have to kind of put that in the equation too. Like don't discredit. A lot of people beat themselves up. Oh, I'm so slow. And this and that. The other thing I'm like, what you're doing out there is really, really flipping hard. Doing anything for that long is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Five and a half hours was my best 70.3 finish. And I'm telling you, six hours of working is six hours of working, period. You know, so. Well, I looked it up. Your age group qualifying for Boston is three hours, 25 minutes flat, according to the website for the BAA. Just for comparison's sake, the record on the course was set in 2011 by Jeffrey Matai, and it's two hours, three minutes and one second. Um. The female record was set in, in 2002, and that's two hours, 20 minutes, and 43 seconds. And your age group, the record on the course was set um, uh, in 1983. Wow. And for veterans men, that's what it's called, between 50 and 59 years old, two hours, 24 minutes, five seconds. I was about to say somebody went under two thirty for sure because there's there's a handful of guys that are in between. Like once you go under three hours, you're in a very 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 elite group of people. Once you can put a two on the front of your marathon time, well, the greatest of all time has a two in front of his. So it, just remember that you're in that group. So you know to sit there and to actually finish the first one. Um, well, the funny thing is, it's like okay, technically I got in on time, but. With most bar- uh, most Boston qualifying experiences, um, since I have none, but following what everyone else has said, if you really want to get in, three twenty five is not going to do it. Like you need to you need to pad your stats enough because you're going to have so many people that are going to be trying to submit those times. And they limit the number of bibs, so they, they the start at the top and they go down. And if you're barely squeaking in, you could get cut off. You could get cut off, yeah. Well, here's the thing that I hadn't considered. Um, 
when I did the time, um, I started talking with Tim about the whole possibility of the charity thing. And it was because this marathon that I had done was the breast cancer marathon. And I did a small fundraiser and I think we raised like two grand in no time, you know, and it was sort of like, well, I was going to do it anyways. And now it makes me feel good that I can actually do something that helps someone. And I kind of planted the seed and he was like, well, you know, Mark's going to do this, take a chance for charity thing. And you know that there's going to be a play and this and that and the other thing. I didn't submit the Boston time. <laughs> and the only reason I didn't is because I didn't think I had enough. Like, I, I didn't think I had enough to be able to get in. And then, of course, we all get the email. They're like, due to lack of entries and lack of qualifying races, they're going to just take everybody. So I went, oh, two years in a row, I should have submitted the time. I didn't submit the time, but um, when I when I was talking with Tim and with Mark, they were like, we're going to do this. So, And we're pretty sure that we can secure the bibs. And I said, okay. I said, let's do this for sure. Um, because at that point, it was like, there's no question, could I cover the distance? Uh, Boston's an entirely different animal from Jacksonville. Jacksonville is pancake flat. Like there's, you don't even go over a causeway in Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville is 110 feet of elevation from start to finish. And Boston's a, a downhill race, like, uh, you know, which is tough here in Florida. I can simulate uphills a lot. We've got a lot of hills here in Claremont, um, crazy amount of hills. We've got some loops that have a crazy amount of climbing. But the funny thing is descending, we don't have a lot of that. So um, I'm probably going to be putting the treadmill on blocks over the next few weeks because <laughs> our treadmill will, will go down, but I need it to go really down. So, yeah, I think I'm just going to do some sessions, um, you know, working on the downhills because I feel really good about all the ups, the climbing. Um, I'm holding – I'm sitting at about 75 miles a week uh, with about 2,500 of elevation. So I've got about 10,000 per month um, that I'll be bringing in. Climbing is not the problem. It's just – it's that going down it's and it's going and it's the combination of the two right if you're in one gear for a long period of time doing the one thing you could probably train for that but you have to change gears completely you know i'm, I'm the way i'm approaching boston is um a 16 mile warm-up <laughs> a four mile hill uh workout and then a 10k ripper to the finish that's how i want to actually section off the race first 16 miles I want to be yucking it up, laughing, saving energy, almost conserving energy. Because when I get to the hills, I don't want to smash the hills. I want to navigate the hills, and I want to crest the top at 20, and I, that's where I want to lay into the 10K. I want to see what what can happen on that last 10K. But you got to show up and shape at mile 20, and mile 20 is a tricky part in anyone's marathon because that's where you – if you've screwed up your nutrition – it's going to show up right there at mile 20. It doesn't well, matter how they say the half that that's the halfway point of the Boston marathon. That's the joke because Pretty mile much. 20 is at the top of heartbreak Hill. And there's a reason why they call it yep. that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's no joke. And the thing about it, when, when you look at heartbreak Hill, um, we've actually got three Hills here in Florida that are way more intense than anything that Boston has, but it's where it sits in the race. <laughs> when you show up to mile 16, even if you've done it right, you're fatigued. Okay, you are going to carry fatigue no matter what. Even the most trained runner on earth hits that 16 mile mark. And once they start the hill sequence, you've got four and a half miles of work. And um, a lot of people don't realize here in Florida, we have what we call rollers. You go up, you come down, you go up, you come down. There's a there's a nice sine wave to most of our routes. The hill sequence in Boston doesn't do that. You go up, you level and then you go up again, and then you level it. So you never really get the down until you crest heartbreak and you're headed back into the city. Um, 
So I think if you can handle mile 16 to 21 correctly, you can have a great day in Boston. If you screw that section up, everything after that is going to be struggle street. I mean, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be bad to the finish. Um, And there's some things you can't plan for too. You, I know some great runners who screwed that race up, you know, and they're like, it's easy to get sucked into running too fast. And that 16 miles are like, you better lay up, lay up, lay up, lay up. I'm like, all right. Well, plus we you, you never know. I mean, speaking of the cold weather, when you were running in Florida, bro- being someone that broadcasted. So first of all, I grew up here. So the Boston Marathon is just part of life for anyone that grows up around here. Second of all, I've been drinking beers at the finish line, broadcasting at the finish for like 15 years, being one of those people that was like, someday I'm going to run it. I'm going to be out there someday. And (laughs) But one of the things you can't prepare for, because New England is just famous for it, especially in mid-April, is you could get a 75-degree day or it could be friggin' snowing, raining, windy. You literally have no way of knowing what the weather is going to be. And the Which other really th- made me nervous because last year was perfect. And the perfect days very rarely ever show up. But it was like one of those days where it was a slight tailwind and it was cool and it was clear skies, um, but not warm at all. Everyone said it was like the perfect running day. So I'm like, okay, what curveball is the universe going to throw us this year? I can bundle up. I can throw the hats on. You get hot, you take stuff off. The opposite, oh my God. I, I had a training session yesterday and it was tough because it was a lot of threshold work, uh, mile repeats at threshold. It was 84 degrees when I started and it was like 85% humidity. So I was like, okay, this is going to be a grinder. And I knew by the end of it, I was like, I'm going to be cross-eyed when I finish this thing. But that's sort of the, you know, the threshold workout is going to be hard anyway. So I was like, all right, so the heat's just going to make it a little bit harder. You know, it's just hard plus, you know, times, whatever. Um, I can run in cold all day long, all day long. Uh, we were just up in the city for the NDSS gala. Um, got a chance to see Mark do the whole Sinatra thing. Um, and we were right there at Central Park and it was raining that morning. It was 37 degrees. Um, and the rain stopped and I put a beanie on, I had long sleeve shirt. I had my, uh, uh, my hoodie on, I had running shorts with, I had, you know, tights on long socks and I brought the gloves. And the only thing that I would do is every maybe five miles, I'd throw the gloves in the pockets, just kind of let the hands kind of cool down. And then I'd get cool again and I'd throw the gloves back on. It was one of the best runs because I was like, I didn't need to get rid of anything. Um, and I was comfortable the whole time. So you could put me in super cold and I'll be fine. Now, if it gets too cold, like 20s, I don't think it's ever been that cold for Boston. I think the coldest Boston was the one, the really bad one with the, well, it was basically the Nor'easter that hit. It was like in the 30s, but it was it was like 40 mile an hour winds. It was crazy looking um, to see everyone out there in windbreakers. And they all had that same look on their face. Like, what are we doing? Kill me. <laughs> this is supposed to be fun. <laughs> well, when I, when I ran it in 2019, I had somebody drop me at the finish. I didn't go to Boston and take the buses out to the start. And it was okay. torrential downpour. Oh and yeah. So I had the stuff and whatever, and it was still raining when we started. And then the first 10 to 12 miles, it went from cloudy and misting and rain to hot, humid, and I just was stripping everything. Matter of fact, my friend Megan, if she's listening to this, was at mile 10, and I handed her this offering of all my disgusting, sweaty clothes. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's still friends with me, thankfully. But yeah. by the time I got to mile 16, the clouds came back. It got really cold and you were either sweaty wet or rain wet. And then yeah. it got really windy in the hills. And my now husband was standing at the 20 mile marker at the top of the hills. And I come around the corner and I'm crying because I'm just, I'm like, my brain, because you know, in a oh, yeah. race like this, it's you against your brain. And my brain's going, you are not going to finish this. Now, the radio station had a broadcast waiting for me at the finish line. So if I quit, what Yeah, yeah, yeah. What am I going to do? Get on the T and, and take the train to my own party? <laughs> and I'm crying and I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not going to finish this. And he's like, well, I'm getting on the train and going to your party at the finish. I'll see you there. <laughs> <laughs> and, one way or the other there. and then everybody this was the worst part and thank you to everybody that had the signs because that's one thing that I think Boston is going to be different than any other race you do is the crowds but People they're all going only six more miles and I wanted oh, yeah. to kill every single one of them yep yeah, yep yeah. Hey, when you hit 20, I, I, look, I know Boston's a, a completely different thing. You know, it, it's a it's a very technical race um, that you should pay attention to and you should break into segments. But even on a dead flat marathon course, when you cross mile 20, everything changes. You know, it's like even if you've done it correctly, because um, I did the first one correctly, but it was it was so weird because it was like right as I was crossing 20, I remember going, huh, like that's not the wall, but that's something else. Um, it, it was just weight. It was like, everything got heavier. It, it just felt like the earth, like gravity just started pulling heavier. Um, I could still move at the same pace, but the effort was much higher to be able to maintain it. Um, and the thing, unfortunately for me is that 20 <laughs> at 20 on the Jacksonville marathon was the point where we came out of the neighborhoods and we took a turn due North, which was straight into the wind. So we had the last 10 K was 10 miles of headwind, which made it really hard um, to the point where there were groups of us that actually, it was faster to walk through some of the guys. <laughs> like we were literally getting picked up and just kind of moved around. So we all just stopped and just said, let's just walk a few steps till this stops. Well, but they put the, tra the charity runners for Boston in the back. That's the last heat. So we don't get in people's way because we're so damn slow. <laughs> That's why they do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the marathon's a fascinating distance. You know, it's that I, I try to explain to people because they're like, oh, so you're a marathoner now. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> um, ideally, I love half marathons. Like half marathon is almost the perfect distance because – you can screw your nutrition up. You really don't have to take any gels if you've if you've loaded correctly. I mean, you can go out there and basically run it in a pair of shorts and some shoes and a hat and be done with it. Um, and there are a lot of people who do it successfully like that. 10Ks are a lot of fun. You don't have to put too much thought process in. But the marathon, <laughs> you better have your nutrition dialed in. You better have a strategy. You better not miss a timing window, which is – that's that's my thing. I do that in training runs where I'll, I'll – I'll take the gel at the beginning and then I'll be like, oh, wait a minute. It's seven, eight miles in. I'm I'm three miles off from nutrition. You can't have that happen in a race. If that happens in a race, you're probably going to hit the wall. Um, because it is very scientific on how much 
carbs that the body is going to need. You know, I look at what I typically burn over the distance and then we work backwards with what can I actually take in? How much can I consume? And I'm usually right at the limit where I'll be holding that gel going, I just can't do it yet. I've still got more in there. And that's always a good spot to be. You know, when you're sitting there going, nope, I'm good. I'm good. You know, hit the water and keep going through. But it's uh, it's such a fascinating distance because, I, you know, it's, like there's people who are doing ultras and, you know, there's people who run like three and 400 mile races and stuff like that. But here's the thing. They're not doing it at the speed that these guys are running up at the front of the friggin' Boston Marathon. These guys are holding sub up five minute pace. They're running faster than I can sprint. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Like on my best day in college, I was uh, in high school. I was probably like I I was around a 430, 440 runner. They're faster than that. And this is when I was a kid running one mile. And these guys do this for a living, you know, so it's a fascinating race because it's not it's not the slugfest that people think it is. I'm like, these guys are running really fast at the front, like crazy fast. And the other thing that you don't prepare for, and I wanted to tell you about this, too. New England roads. Are not your beautiful, perfectly paved Florida roads, because we've got potholes and frost heaves and the elevated train tracks run through the roads too, and you've got to navigate That's right. those. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you got to watch where you're putting your feet. So, these guys are running these 440 miles, and it's like oh, yeah. they're skinny little feet. Like, people have, they, they've had the wheelchair racers get their wheels stuck in the T tracks. They've had racers twist ankles and fall over because they hit, and they do a good job of like driving the course, obviously, because the marathon's such a big deal of trying to repair stuff. Sure, yeah. But it's a New England road. Like, it's not a rubberized running track that's perfect. Right, right, yeah. And it's downhill. Yeah. (laughs) So as as your form is completely going out the window, like, even on your best day, it doesn't matter. That style of running is super fatiguing on the legs. It's like your muscles are wanting to contract and they're having to elongate as you're going down um and there's a lot of there, there's two of them that are sort of concerning the one the one leaving lower newton falls is the one that i'm most concerned about because everyone says you're always going to overrun that one the one um down before firehouse hill as you're getting ready to start all of the newton hills because the first hill is probably the one i know visually it's the one i'm like oh man i Just love you- that you're talking about all these local references and you're not even from here it makes me so happy <laughs> I've studied this course like I know every nook and cranny of this course, but it's that overpass off the out of the first hill. Just when you think you're done with it, you're like, oh, no. And you, you need gotta- to know that that's the mass pike and that is yeah. a wind tunnel. That's what I was about to say. You are completely exposed when you're in there. So the effort level has to be brutal because no matter which way you're getting blown, you don't want to be blown when you're going up a hill. It's Unless awful. it's you got a tailwind that's great, but. You're going this way to the highway, so the chances of you having a tailwind are almost zero. You know. Um, Open up your but, chat window. I want to show you this picture. What's that? Open up the chat in in Zoom. I want to show you this picture. Okay, here we go. These are the four <laughs> stages of the Boston Marathon. <laughs> that is amazing. Top left before the race started. Yeah. <laughs> at the start, okay. <laughs> Top right, Heartbreak Hill. Okay. <laughs> Bottom left is the turn from Comav onto Hereford. 
Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you're you're getting real close. <laughs> and then the bottom right is the face you make when you cross the finish line. There you go. <laughs> that is amazing. That is awesome. So I wanted to give you some advice, and and it's not running advice because you've already far surpassed my training and anything I was capable of. But there's a few things. So number one, you got to get the photo package that all the runners get because the cameras that are out there, I don't know how that AI technology works, but all of a sudden later that night you get this email. That's where all those pictures came from. Those aren't my friends taking photos. Those came from the yeah. official race photos. Yeah, yeah. I started doing that. Um, it, I didn't do it on the first couple, and I kind of regretted it. And then once I started getting the photo pack, and I was like, I don't even see these guys. Like, I don't even know where he was on the course. Like, every now and again, if I do a race that I've done before, like Shark Bite's one that I've done. Um, it's a local race here out of New Smyrna Beach. Um, it's a good tune-up race for a bunch of things. It's super close. I know where those photographers are. So as I'm coming around the band, I'm like, okay, you know, but there's other times when I'm like picking my nose or doing something stupid. I'm like, I didn't even see these guys, you know, if but I didn't with know Boston, they were there, I would have been wiping the tears away. I looked I, miserable. It's gotta be so next level for Boston though, you know, cause yeah. it's like, I mean, you don't get much bigger than the Boston marathon. You really don't. There's, it's just a personal preference, but I don't think there's any bigger marathon on the planet than Boston, you know, there, bigger size. New York, but as far as like just the legendary course, that's the one. And I tried to explain this to, to people. I said, here's why. If you ask a hundred runners, you know, about running and you bring up the Boston Marathon, everyone, oh yeah, 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 yeah. If you ask a hundred non-runners if they've ever heard of the Tokyo or the Berlin or the London Marathon, yeah, you might get a few. You ask them, almost everybody out of the hundred are going to know about the Boston Marathon. <laughs> you have nothing to do with the sport. So, well, I never stu- realized growing up that it was such a big deal in the running community. Cause I grew up here and it's just a big deal for all of us. But the fact that other races have bells that you ring when you qualify for Boston. Yeah. It's a, it's a thing. It's a, it's a big thing. You don't have, and here's, here's what's funny. Like qualifying for New York. If I want to get out on time, I have to have a three fifteen. So I have to I have to be 10 minutes faster for New York than for Boston. But you don't ever hear anyone ringing a bell to qualify for New York ever because the lottery system is so big. Most people get in. They have 50,000 runners in the thing. It's it's a different event. Um, I've heard the cur- the course support is great and the atmosphere is awesome. But they said the big difference is when you're at the start line of the Verrazano Bridge, it's a party. When you're in the athletes village, they're all burners. Everyone who's in there is like, nope, we're here because we did something really hard to get here or we're crazy enough to do the charity play and we're going to do something really hard to make the charity thing happen. You know, either way, it's like everyone is there is there for to, to do something pretty serious. You know, it's not a just, oh, I'm going to go run a marathon. You, nobody's showing up to get into the Boston Marathon is just there because I want to run a marathon, <laughs> you know. Somebody gave me this book when I announced that I was going to run the marathon and I wanted to tell you about it because you're studying the course from a strategy runner's perspective, but if you're going to run Boston one time in your life and you're going to check it off of your athlete bucket list, because this is the 127th Boston Marathon, there is a lot of history and a lot of folklore and a lot of things that you might not know about the course and the history of it. So somebody gave me this book. It's all chewed up because when I got it, I had a puppy, little shit. Um, 
It's called 26.2 Miles to Boston, A Journey into the Heart of the Boston Marathon. And it's by, uh, my, for anybody that's listening that wants to get this book, I loved it. It's uh, written by Michael Connolly with the foreword by legend Bill Rogers. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. um, this is the 10th anniversary of the bombing this year. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the last page of this book, I'm not giving away, you know, spoiler alert, but the last page said uh, it will be on the starting line in Hopkinton and the sidewalks of eight towns and especially at the finish line that the race will bring the community full circle where there was pain. There will be life where there was a moment of hate. There will be eternal love where Boylston Street was empty. It will be full for 117 years. The Boston Marathon has endured. Boston will forever be the city upon the hill where people come every April to pay witness to the world's greatest race. And that was 10 years ago. And this book goes through like, I mean, this is why when I ran it, if you see the pictures, I had 261 written mm -hmm. on my arms to pay tribute to the first runner that was a woman that lied and put her name in there and they thought she was a man and she ran oh, with yeah. the bib. And like, there's so many great stories in here about the history of the race. The race director tried to actually get her out of the race physically. Physically tried assaulted her. Knocked him out of the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I watched the Boston movie and it was fascinating seeing, seeing all of those, uh, you know, the, all of the, the Bill Rogers wins and yeah, the, the whole women in, in marathoning, that was where it all started. They did they didn't know women could run a marathon because it was like, because they'd never let them try. You know, it was like no one was ever allowed to actually give it a shot. And when they did it, did it well, like really well, you know, it wasn't just that they finished the marathon. They were actually like, oh, OK, I guess they can do this. But that's like how short sighted we were not that long ago. And it goes know? back to the to like the first one and like the four dudes that ran at the first like the story yeah. of the marathon is crazy. And I'll and I'll tell you this because. I had been on the other side of the fence and everybody told me when I announced for the charity that I was running and I trained the best I could and did all of that. They said, at some point you need to let the crowd carry you home. And for me, cause I'm a music nerd, as you know, and I told Mark this because there were some altar bridge songs. I made a playlist to listen to that helped me train. That was the soundtrack to my marathon run and Alterbridge had some songs in there. So when I hear those songs now, it's like I relive the pain of the race, but yeah, the last yeah. few miles, I just took the headphones out because I wanted to remember right. what that was like. And it is, you are, an honorary Bostonian because we've wrapped our arms around seven dust for over two decades now. Oh, for sure. I am so excited for you to be able to experience the love from the city this way. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I, there's, there's an interesting thing about that too, because when I, when I'm out in a race and I'm struggling, um, Usually I turn the music down and I go find the power up signs. If there's a little eight year old kid and he's got the power up. I go find them. And it's the weirdest thing because those little things will just get you. It'll get you out of that dark place and it'll kind of get your mind focused on, okay, well, yeah, this sucks, but yeah, it could be a whole lot worse. You know, it's like, I'm still moving. 
and I'm still moving decently. Maybe I'm not feeling the way that I want to feel. And those little moments, those breaks um, that you can just take the crowd in, it's such a huge thing. Like it's an, it, like don't underestimate it for anyone who's ever out there supporting people in a race. It is crucial <laughs> for some people to get through those things, you know? But, um, I think the thing, you know, it was funny. A buddy of mine was like, Hey man, like, why are you training so hard for this? And I was like, cause I want to enjoy it. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to feel like I'm struggling through this. I actually want to try to absorb as much of it as possible. Um, there was a moment in time where I think fitness wise, you know, if, if I connected all the dots correctly and just nailed everything that I could flirt with like dipping under three hours. Um, and I immediately kind of said, I'd rather run a three fifteen and end with a smile on my face than go for three and screw it up or end up having to walk the last three or four miles or do something like that. And I have enough respect for this course to go, you know what? Um, I'm never going to beat that course. I'll beat my effort on the course, but I won't beat the course. So I have to have, I have to look at it from a respect level and say, look, <laughs> this is a legendary course and a lot of runners have avoided it. The greatest of all time is going to be running there. Elliot Kipchoge has never run the course. You can't really consider yourself the greatest of all time unless you check all the boxes and he's going down the list, checking all the boxes. But this is, this is New York. like the last two he's got left, but he's avoided them for a reason. They're not easy. <laughs> he can go to London and Berlin and Chicago and he can run those pancake flat courses and just nail it. But it's a different animal when you have to navigate, you know, the hip, the hills in, in Boston. And it is the most hilly course for sure. Granted, it's net downhill, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Most people think it's an advantage, but it's really a disadvantage. It's not because as soon as you go, <laughs> as soon as the downhills are done, the muscles that you've been exercising in the downhill are trashed and the other ones are cold. Oh, the other ones are cold and your whole body is going, okay, how do we keep you moving forward now that you've done this to us? <laughs> now that you <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do here? You know, but it's just the nature of what it is. You know, it's like you, you can get yourself as strong as you want to be. I think that was probably the biggest thing is on the, the first marathon. I tried to be light. I wanted to be lean, light, fast. Um, and I don't want that for Boston. As a matter of fact, I haven't really started the diet diet yet um, because there's so much hill training that's going on that I'd rather be a little on the heavy side and know that I'm actually getting all the calories in and recovering properly from the training because um, I want to be strong. I don't want to be light and fast. I want to be strong. What do you uh, Boston crave after you do a training run? Like, what do you want to eat when you're done? Um, like, what is not not what do you eat? What does your body want? Uh, if I've really, really nailed it or screwed it up ever so slightly, usually like pizza, you know, something terrible. You I, know, so my body wanted a hot fudge sundae. Okay. Yeah. 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 Th those things are great. Like ice cream, sweets, carbs, things like that. Um, but the thing is, is it, like for a marathon, like anything that's super long, if I've been taking gels the whole time, I won't want the sugar. Like I'll want something that's got a little bit more substance, but it's usually something bad, like a burger you know, let, let me just go ahead and just get all the all the stuff back in. But um, no matter what, it's like the focus on this build for me was more about protein intake and making sure that I don't get light because I will react to a marathon plan and I'll get real skinny, um, which is great, but not for Boston. You got to be strong. I, I don't see skinny runners doing well in Boston. I see strong runners doing very well in Boston, you know, people who've really um, respected it and just, they know what they're getting into. And I'm looking there. I'm like, when I look at the course profile, I'm like, good Lord. 
uh, my aunt and uncle live out of Mount Lemon. They're they're out in Tucson, and I joke. I'm like, I might just come out to you and go run down the mountain for about a week before the race, just to simulate that. Just don't you know? twist anything. I did my 20 miler. That's why I'm, I'm going to do it on a treadmill. Yeah, I'm going to do all stuff here. I mean, that that's the other thing too is you can't do anything that risks you showing up to the start line in good shape. And the last block before the taper is the one where you can do it very easily. If you're not careful, this is the point of, 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 unfortunately, um, I hate the treadmill. I can't stand it. I am not a treadmill guy, but guess what? I uncovered it. It is going to be a tool that I'll be using quite a bit, at least for all the recovery stuff. And at least the dedicated, if I need to go up or down at a specific thing, it's safer. You know, it gets me to the start line in a, in a in a better spot. If I'm out running around and doing stupid stuff, it's so easy to to twist an ankle. I mean, a friend of ours, local friend of ours, um, she's she's never really done much trail running, and she was out trail running, and she literally she screwed her knee up, and she's been out of Ironman for two years now because she had to have complete she had to completely reconstruct her knee all from doing something stupid. You know, and I'm like, okay, well, she's 15 years younger than me. There's no reason to think that, you know, as I get older, I'm going to be better at being able to avoid things like that. But I twisted my I, knee at mile 14 of the 20 miler. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was yeah. what, so, three it, weeks before the marathon? And I was like, yeah. oh, man, I hope I can recover. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a I had a little bit of a struggle when I was um, going into uh, the 70.3 that I did back in December. Um, stupid thing. I was walking through the garage barefoot. Um, and I tripped over a cable that was, it was a fan cord that was plugged in and I didn't go down. But what I did is I stuck my leg out the, the leg that I was tripping over the cable with and I splayed the, you know, it, it hit the, you know, the slab really, really hard. And at first I kind of went, Oh, well, you know, that was weird. And then I couldn't walk. <laughs> so for like two or three days, I was like, Oh God, what have I done? You know? And it was like, <laughs> really didn't even get black and blue. Like I, you know, everyone's like, you know, can you run on it? I'm like, no, like I can't even walk much less run. So this was like three weeks before the race where I'm supposed to be doing all the really super hard intensity, speed work, things like that. And I wasn't doing any of it. I was in the pool. <laughs> I was working on swimming. Um, so I did that race. I did a tune-up race um, the week before just to practice nutrition and to see if I could actually cover a half mile because I was a little nervous that I couldn't finished the race and I felt okay. And when I mean, okay, like on a scale of one to 10, I was a five and a quarter, you know, like I, it wasn't great. Um, but it was enough where I said, okay, focus on recovery, sleep, keep your feet up, hydrate, stretch, do everything that I can do. And I did the race and the race went well. Um, but what didn't go well <laughs> was that was, uh, the race was literally almost at the 16 week point for the beginning of the build to Boston. And you know, you got to be realistic when you're starting to build, depending on what you're coming out of. And I just came out of the 70.3. I chased Achilles issues for the better part of about three weeks, only because it was like the body was telling me, hey, this is too much stimulus at at what you're doing for what what you want to do and what you're trying to do. So there was like two or three weeks of just kind of touch and go, letting the body kind of dictate what was going to happen before I could actually jump into the plan. And once I did jump into the plan, it was very delicately because um, Ironman is weird. Like people think that you run every day and you don't like I would run tops four days a week. So and there was usually be every other day. Um, it was very unusual to get to a point where you're running consecutive days in a triathlon build. But with marathoning, 
that's pretty much all you're doing. You're yoga, strength training and running. So I had to be very careful because I would do like three days in a row and then my body would be like, Hey, you know, like this is, this is a different stimulus for us. And I would do something different on the third day. So, you know, trying to get into a structured plan that's like, okay, six days of running one day off. I was like, okay, I'm going to take the day off when my 54 year old self needs a day off. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, as, as simple as I could make it, I was like, you just take the time off when you need the time off. Now a day off for me might be still doing a lifting session, maybe doing something, um, you know, doing core work, uh, you know, hip flexors, you know, working on all the other stuff that a lot of people don't think about. A lot of people don't think about working their shoulders and their arms in a marathon. Go run 20 miles and see how sore this whole area is if you haven't done anything. It's it's the weirdest thing in the world. And I when I, I remember when the, the first marathon build, it, it was like I'd come back from the run and Lori would be like, so how was that? I'm like, my arms are killing me. <laughs> like, Did you do it on your hands? It was like, no. But like, I have to work. I have to work the entire system because you're using your whole body when you run, you know, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it, it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, one that I never, I never really thought that I would be, I'm not going to say I love marathon training. Um, I think the training has to suck just enough for you to show up on race day and actually go, okay, I got this. It's going to suck. It's going to be hard. And there's going to be times where I want to quit, you know, just like every other race. But, um, you know, I think the more you can, the more of, of that junk that you can get out of the way when you're doing the training, which is sort of why I'm, I'm like, I'm a good student of the training of it. Um, I, I do actually enjoy the process, but I don't like this three weeks because this three weeks is just really, really high miles, you know, 75 miles every week. I'll, I'll carry, you know, another 200 250 miles before we start the taper and it's just a lot of it's just monotony at this point it's just i don't know if i'm building as much as i'm maintaining and absorbing um but it's a good spot to be in because i've i've only carried this mileage once and i felt horrible when i did it you know on my first marathon when i got up to 76 miles and went that's it that is my body is telling me you are it there's nope nope you're you're gonna do more damage than good if you try to add any more um, this one, I hit the 22 miler in New York and I felt, I felt like I could do it again if I had to, I wouldn't willingly want to, but if you held a gun in my head and said, go run that one more time, no problem. I'm, I'm not going to get shot. Um, so it was a completely different thing, you know, and it was, uh, a lot more, uh, hill type training and stuff like that, which I'm sure is probably why I didn't feel as smashed up as I did on my first marathon. I didn't run up a hill at all. Never. I mean, it was just something that I think once every two or three weeks, we'd have like a treadmill workout where I had a few hills, but we were working on a completely different thing, flat and fast, which a lot of people think is easy. Um, I joke about that. I'm like, it's sort of, if I have my choice between a flat course or a course like Boston, let me actually do the Boston before I 100% commit to it, but I'd almost rather the, the relief of the up and the down. Because third, I, I did um, when I did Shark Bite back in January. That was the thing that I noticed more than anything was that ten miles. I just went. There's just no relief. Like it's one speed, one muscle system, one thing for literally like no relief at all. Um, and I do like going downhill occasionally. You know, you climb the hill. Ah, oh, it sucks to get up there. And, oh, 
you can kind of, you know, take a breath. And, you know, when you do the flat races, it's not that stimulus at all. But I guess generally it probably is, is easier, especially here in Florida, because it's it's easier to train for that. I can just go run around the neighborhood. You know, on the first marathon build, I was doing most of my training here in the neighborhood or pretty close. And with this one, it's like I got to get in the car and I got to drive right over there, about 20 minutes away over in Claremont, which is, um, strangely enough, a triathlon capital of the world. Um, and we are very hilly. Central Florida is, is particularly hilly. Um, so I got lucky with that one. Well, plus you're doing it all for a good cause. So you got to talk to me about the charity and where everybody's donations are going to go. The link to make a donation to your run is going to be in the show notes of this episode. So it'll be really easy for people to support the run. But, but talk to me about, about Mark's challenge to you. He, I remember when he first, um, I think we were just hanging out over his house and he was like, Hey, come and check this thing out. And he walked in there and he shows me this U 47. And I was like, what are you doing with a U 47? And then he starts singing some Sinatra. And I was like, what are you doing singing Sinatra? And then he started talking. He goes, well, I got this idea. He goes, I want to do this thing. And he, he told me about take a chance for charity, which, you know, I'd never heard of because obviously it wasn't even a thing at that point. It was just, you know, the idea stage, but he told me the whole thing about doing the record for charity and doing it for downs and everything. And it was, it seemed like a no brainer. Cause I was like, all right, here's the thing. Nobody else is going to do a Sinatra record. Like, I don't know any other rock musician who's going to do a Sinatra record. So that in itself is already something that was like, okay, it's music, but you're out of your comfort zone. You're not doing the thing. You don't even have a guitar. Like, and guitar the bar player, like, is high. Bars high, especially when you're playing with Sinatra's band, like the actual guys who are in the room with him. They heard the the dude do it, you know. Um, so when he told me about the whole thing, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating. And I, I remember at the end of it, he was like, um, and this isn't something that's going to stop here. You're probably going to get the first challenge. And I immediately, you know, I was like, well, I'm not doing music. You know, he's like, well, why not? You know, you could do like hip hop or country. And I was like, because that's sort of predictable. You know, it's like there's been enough artists that have done, oh, okay, he's going to go do this since he did this. I was like, I don't think it has to be like limited to just a musical thing. Maybe it could be, you know, any way that we can figure out a way to generate money. And I told him, I was like, look, I did that, the Donna Marathon and raised two grand without really working it that hard. You know, I, I just figured, let, let's just see what the community will throw my way because I'm going to do it anyways. And he was like, why don't we, why don't we do that? <laughs> and I was like, well, cause I got to get into a race. And he was like, pretty sure we could probably figure out a way to get you a bib if you want to commit to do it. And, um, this was probably two years ago, you know, and he worked on the Sinatra thing, got the record done, got everything launched. And then right on cue, he's like, so you ready for challenge two? Cause we got three and four in, in the works as well. Um, a lot of people don't realize that there are, there's going to be, a lot of these take a chance uh, for charities that are going to be popping up um, and a lot of different things people are going to be asked to do. For me, it was like, okay, running is something that comes naturally, but the marathon distance is still, a, it's, it's a challenge. Even if you're a great runner, you're not going to do more than one or two of these a year, even if you do it for a living. Um, so I figured, okay, this is out of my comfort zone and something that uh, I'm familiar with um, on arguably the world's biggest stage. And I figured, okay, you know, this is something that I'm passionate about from what I'm physically going to be doing, but it's a win-win because like I said, I'm going to, I would enjoy running either way. 
I don't know that I would enjoy running the full 26.2 miles, but on that day, I definitely will. Cause I, you know, I'm trained up for it, but, um, but it, it was just such a, such a cool way for us to be able to kind of give back and doing things that we enjoy doing and are going to be fun anyways. Here's the thing. Mark loves doing the Sinatra stuff and he wishes he would be able to find a way where he can maybe park it and do a little bit more of it. Cause I think at first he was super nervous about doing it. And now he's like, it's great. It's so cool because the band is behind him. They're like, this is great for, and especially because at the end, at the end of the day, it's all about raising money. It's all about raising the money and the awareness. And it's about, you know, just doing things that can help all these other people that, you know, we meet so many of these folks and it's like, these communities need the help, you know, and if you're going to do it anyways, why not try to help? I mean, it seems like it'd be a waste not to. And he talked about the inspiration of his daughter and really he said, this is my life's mission moving forward now. That's it. You know, look, you know, when they first found out that, when they first found out they were going to have a girl and then they found out that there was a possibility that she would have downs, that's a scary time for any family because you just don't know you're going, there's a lot more questions than you have answers. But what I realized is through that whole process, you know, the first couple of weeks was, were very scary. Heart surgeries and things like that on infants are terrifying. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being parents having to go through that, but his group of, of people here and his support network of all of our friends and family, it's, um, the only way that I can explain it is she's just an angel. She's literally like Mark and Vicky wanted a daughter and they didn't get a daughter. They got an angel instead. Like she has brought so much positivity and so much light into so many things. People would think, Oh, downs is a negative thing. And I'm telling you, they're some of the happiest people I've ever met in my entire life. Like they've got extra, you know, they want to give the hug. They want you to be in a good mood. They, they just, they're just joyful people, you know, and it's like it's it's contagious when you're around them and you realize, hey, you know what? Maybe we're overthinking too much stuff, but it's inspirational because about the same time um, I had a coach here, a local coach. Um, his name's Hector Torres. He was the first coach for Chris Nickich. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that name because he did Boston last year and he has Down syndrome. He was the first person to complete an Ironman with Down syndrome. And then he went to the Ironman World Championship in Kona and completed the World Championship with Down syndrome. And then he did the Boston Marathon. I guess what he did last week? Tokyo. So he's on his way to doing all of the majors. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is someone with Down syndrome who's done two marathons and two full Ironmans in four years. And people would consider him disabled. Exactly. That's my point. People are, th- you know, they, they want to label them as disabled. It's like, hey, guess what? He's done. He's done more in four years than I'm a pretty productive guy. And I haven't even scratched the surface of what this guy is doing. So it's fascinating to watch the journey. You know, we see him when we do the walk downtown. He's always there and he's always a speaker. And he's got the 312 run initiative that he started. Um, and it's just I, too many people short change people with down syndrome they i think they just they look at it as one thing and they expect it to be something that it really isn't you know and when you spend time with these people you know sometimes i'm like maybe we're the ones who are screwed up (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) but it's just there's so much passion behind it and uh it's just we yeah we were actually at her birthday party yesterday which was awesome um she turned two and she threw up her cake (laughs) (laughs) But she threw up her cake last year as well, too. So, um, but, but she had an awesome time. But 
it's just, you know, there's just, there's so much positive energy uh, surrounding her and surrounding the Chimanis. And it's just, it, I can see Mark, I can see, you know, he had this vision for what he wanted to do with this a couple of years ago. And now that you can see what it actually turned into, I think for him, when I look at him, I can see the gratification because he went into this scared. He, you know, you're a scared parent and you don't know what you're getting yourself into. But two years later, with all of this money and all of this, this fundraising that we've been able to do and all of the attention that we've been able to bring to it. And like I said, we're just scratching the surface. You know, you got Chris out there doing Ironmans and marathons left and right. Um, you know, these people aren't as disabled as you, 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 you may think they are. Well, you, uh, have been the subject of conversations that I have had recently. I talked to Tyler Connolly from Theory of a Dead Man. Obviously, oh, nice. I talked to Clint from Seven Dust. I had a long conversation with Mark Tremonti about you. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I gave them my Boston finishing time. Six hours, 24 minutes, 50 seconds. And the question has been, can you do it in less than half? Can John Connolly do the Boston Marathon twice and what it would took me to do it once? So I'm going to pose the question to you. If we cut six hours, 24 minutes, 50 seconds in half, can you cut my time in half? So you're 624? 624, so 50. I would have to go 312? 31225. Um. It's in the window of possibility <laughs> for sure. It's it, 315 is sort of my loose target. And I'm going to give myself kind of like 10, 15 minutes in either direction. Because if, if we show up and it's 80 degrees, everyone's running slower. Uh, if we show up and it's 32 degrees and I can actually have to put on some really, really, you know, protective uh, gear, uh, 312 is, is doable. I mean, it's, it's a little quick, but maybe. Um, hey, look, on the perfect day, I'll go under three hours, but I, I don't think it's going to happen in Boston. <laughs> I think I will be somewhere uh, within striking range of 315. So I think I think I could I think I could get a 312. I think. Well, well if you get out of the hills <laughs> and you're feeling good. I want to pop into your head. OK, yeah, yeah. you got to beat my time by half. OK. As, All right. It's as close as to competitive as I'm going to get with you. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, 315 was what was on paper. So if I look at it this way, if I'm going to be out there for three hours, it's only an extra minute per hour. Um, I can definitely find that somewhere for sure. I just, I have to be careful not to try to find it early in the race. Yeah, I don't find do that. It. Yeah, yeah. Because that chasing times and races like this, I think is where people probably get themselves into trouble because you think you can bank early and it never works out that way, ever. Um, I was watching a, they actually had a fascinating um, graph on all of the elite runners over the years and everyone who's attempted to run the Boston course. Um, some people try to put a bunch of time in the front and then ease up on the hills. Some people try to do it even split. Try to, some people try to negative split it. Almost every single graph within range, are, they all do the same thing and they all have the fall off at the same spot. So it's the people who manage the the front of the race the best are the ones who have the better finishes. And I mean, it's like they're data points you can look at. And it's not like, oh, well, maybe. No, these are actually winners. <laughs> these are guys who've won the race. Well, these you can see it as a spectator because we watch it on TV and bars and stuff. And it's yep. always the guys that are at the front for the first eight or ten miles. 
And then the guy that wins was always the guy that they weren't talking about for the first half yeah. of the race. It's like CJ Albertson, um, which I follow a lot. He's uh, he's local. I, I believe he might be from the Boston area, but sort of a hometown course. He gets to train on the course a lot. He has tried to put so much time into the front of that, and he's he's convinced that he's going to do it one of these years, but it hap- every year it happens the same way. He'll get a half-mile lead on the field, and then by the second Newton Hill, here comes the here comes the pack. The train is rolling. He's blowing up, and they all run by him, and he ends up finishing in like tenth place, which is still respectable for the Boston Marathon. If I if I got if I got in the top ten thousand of the Boston Marathon, it would be a day to celebrate. But um, it, yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch these. So many people have, have tried so many different things. So I'm like. I, no one's gonna like discover something about the course that they haven't been able to figure it's out. Been 127 over. years, yeah. and right. the best right. of the best have tried. That's it. Everyone's tried everything, and the only thing that works is management. You know, and enjoying the day—that's the thing. And which I think is what comes back to the whole thing is like the experience alone is worth just being able to train it up as best I can, so where I can just go into race day and with a smile on my face and go, "I'm just gonna just have fun." I mean, really just want to have fun on that day. You know, it's like I don't have to get into the Boston Marathon a minute. I don't have to qualify. There's no specific time other than the 312, which I will remember. (laughs) 312 is my new target. Um, But, yeah, it's like you don't want to miss that experience. It's an experience of a lifetime. You know, Bill told me when I first called him because he was like, oh, I'm never doing a marathon. And I was like, well, just hear me out because – you know, Boston might be the take a chance for charity and we might have more than one bib. Would you want to do it? And he goes, ah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was like that quick, you know, and I was like, are you sure you don't want to think about it? And he goes, no, he goes, these are not things that you think about. These are things that you go, I have an opportunity to do this. Okay. I'm going to go and I'm going to train my way and I'm going to show up and we're going to have, that's how I got into trouble myself. You're going to have it, but it's an experience of a lifetime. Yeah. I wouldn't give it up for anything, but I will never do it again. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I might. <laughs> For me, I, I don't know. It's, it was funny because we did the gala this week. And, of course, um, you know, the NDSS people corner me. And they're like, just so you know, um, we're sponsoring the New York Marathon this year. We have bibs. And we're doing Berlin next year. And I was like, now you're talking about all the majors. Like, are you going to do Tokyo and Chicago? And they're like, well, eventually. And I was like, oh, God, don't, don't tell Lori. You know, because like, one marathon at a time. Yeah, because after this, um, it, I think I'm going to go back to 70.3 for a minute, um, do some Ironman stuff. But I, I think this one scratches the itch so big that I can kind of decompress and unplug and then kind of figure out what I really want to do. Well, don't you have to much- release a record? Yes. Yes. 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which I actually um, it's interesting because <laughs> we were hanging out at the party. And of course, you know, Iraq and Mark are like, don't you have a seven us record that we haven't heard yet? I'm like, yeah, you want to hear it? <laughs> had this thing done for like months i'm like yep and it won't come out until july um but we have shot all the videos um we got all the video footage done um we're waiting on the fourth one which is actually the first one but it's the way that the video is done is why it's taking a little bit longer um all the content's done everything's locked and loaded um we have a new label i don't know if i'm allowed to talk about that now but <laughs> too late now <laughs> it's too late now. Yeah, we're uh, we're over at Napalm. Uh, so we're over there with the Alterbridge crew. And um, it, the label that we'd actually, uh, we almost signed with Napalm before we signed with Rise last time. And it was sort of like a coin toss. Like we didn't know which one to go with. Um, 
but yeah, um, that'll all be firing up. Uh, we've got some dates with Alter Bridge in May. Uh, I think we've got eight or nine shows with them then, and we're crossing our fingers that we'll be able to do it again, um, either summertime or in the fall. Um, I think we're going to be doing a lot of touring with Alter Bridge if we can do it, which works out great for all of us because you guys you all know, are friends for so long. We're friends. We're family. We have the same management. Um, it's just it, it's easier. We share crew. Um, it's just an easy touring scenario because we get it and they get us, you know. So, but yeah, Seven Dust is going to get super busy this summer. So, um, one thing I did come to realize when doing all this triathlon stuff and doing touring, um, it's very difficult to balance both. Um, you're burning calories up on stage whether you like it or not. And the first Ironman, I remember I came in there and coaches looking and goes, I don't know why you're so over on everything, you know? And he's like, your calorie burn is just nuts. Like, what's going on here? And I was like, well, he was like, how many calories you burn during the show? I'm like, yeah, 350 to four. And he goes, five nights, six nights a week. And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, that's like an entire day of calories that we're not considering. And I, I was like, oh, yeah. Well, he goes, here's what you do. On a day where you have a show, you're not doing any doubles and you count the show as a workout. So that's what I ended up having to start doing was literally I had to take seven to show and that was one of the training stimulus. <laughs> but it's cardio. It's like it's like your heart doesn't know what you're doing. It just knows that it has to work. So because you're singing, you're playing, you're doing whatever and you're burning X. So I was much happier when I actually incorporated that because the first time through, it was horrible. We were out on a long tour and I'm trying to do you know, 50 mile bikes into six mile runs and then do the meet and greet and then sleep and then get on stage and do the show and then get up and do it again. And I was just, I felt hollow. Like I, I was so smashed out of my gourd at all times. You, you just feel dinged out. You're like, I don't even know if like my brain is functioning correctly. At this you point. used to be like that back in the early days for a completely different reason. Yeah. I mean, those are all self-inflicted. There are way <laughs> too many cocktails. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's almost exactly the same feeling now, but from completely smashing yourself out on a run. <laughs> but well, no, man, all, it, the, it, uh, all the Seven Dust fans are going to be there along the course. I'm going to be down there. I am so people. excited that we're going to get to cheer you on and support you and welcome you as a Bostonian in a completely new way. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. It really is. And Boston's such a special place to begin with just because of the history of what the band has with the town. Um, you know, I know we got signed out of New York City, but New York City never felt like home. You know, there's there's a couple places that have always felt like home. Atlanta obviously always feels like home, even though I'm in Orlando now. Orlando feels like home. Chicago had a little moment of home, but we did home in Boston for a reason. You know, I mean... I think the universe throws you things. We didn't know why the record was called home, but I think we know why the record was called home. This is my studio and I call it MCHQ. And right outside that door right there, the first thing you see is the home gold record. Yeah. Yeah. It's our home. I mean, we've done so many good things and had so many great experiences in Boston. So it's only fitting that I actually, this race is there because it would be a shame if it was like, you know, the, you know, the Anchorage marathon was the you know, the 127th running of that and be like, Oh, well, okay. I don't really have anything cool to talk about, but yeah, Boston is such a special place for, you know, for our band. And, uh, there's only one Boston marathon. That's it. <laughs> there's only one unicorn and it's in Boston period. 
There he is, the one and only John Connolly from Seven Dust, future Boston Marathon finisher. Check the show notes of this episode to find all the links to find John and Seven Dust online. You're also going to find this episode's corresponding playlist, and that includes the brand new single from Seven Dust, Fence, that got released today. Fence is the first single from their upcoming new album, their 14th album, Truth Killer, that's scheduled for a worldwide release on July 28th. And catch Seven Dust out on the road next month with Alter Bridge. Also in the show notes is a link to John Connolly's fundraiser to take a chance for charity and run the Boston Marathon. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, and every weekday you get the sit rep, which gives you all of your rock and music news, entertainment headlines, and industry updates. You can also join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. And you can track me down on the radio at 100 FM The Pike in Worcester, Massachusetts and 106.3 The Bone in Portland, Maine and other stations around the country. Get all the details on that and more at mistresscarry.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.